Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, recorded in November of 2019, I speak with someone who really doesn't need an introduction. He's one of the most famous scientists alive today, Paul Ehrlich. Paul has written or co-written over 1,100 scientific papers, uh, including many with his wife, Anne, uh, over 40 books. And you'll see few people alive get the concept of overshoot more clearly than Paul Ehrlich does. It's just an honor for me to speak with somebody I've held in highest esteem for four decades or longer. Just give us a sense of what you're up to these days. What's your particularly um, known? Well, I can I can summarize very easily. I'm working with two Mexican colleagues uh, on a book on the extinction of populations uh, because most of the emphasis is put on the extinction of species. But as you probably know, uh, much more serious problem at the moment is the loss of individuals from populations. We've lost a probably about a third of the birds in North America, for example. We've lost, yep. uh, in some places, 80 or 90% of the insects already. Uh, they're absolutely vital to us and so on. So we're working hard on that. I'm working with another Mexican, a orthodontist, uh, on the only big environmental problem that I think we can do something about and help people today, and that's the shrinkage of the human jaw. And we're working on working with a geneticist, with the, the orthodontist, the geneticist, and um, the world's expert on stress, because the shrinking jaws are giving lots of people sleep apnea, which is a huge stressor and which ties to everything from heart disease to cancer. Yes. Uh, and I'm preparing lectures for a trip to Australia where I'm going to be trying to tell, for example, the Parliament of South Australia how bad things are there. They're, they're facing another Murdoch summer. As you may know, Rupert Mur Murdoch, more than anyone else, is responsible for massive deaths in the future from uh, his promotion of climate disruption. Uh, and hang, on hang, hang, hang on just a second. Hang on just a second. I just want to note that I have never heard Murdoch Summer before, and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the last Murdoch Summer, I happened to be in South Australia, and the flying foxes, which are one of the yes. nice features of the Australian environment, were dropping dead out of the trees from the heat. Yes. And, of course, as you may have seen, uh, hotter, uh, well, lots of places now are starting to air condition the outside because it's too hot for people to survive outside. And of course, air conditioning the outside is usually done by generating electricity by burning coal. And guess what that does? Exactly. It's even hotter. So yes. these, and then again, there's a thug now running the United States. Uh, and that occupies a lot of my time that I'd rather it didn't. Yeah. So, you, you mentioned something about three books in the works? Uh, yeah, I have uh, the, the one that I uh, just mentioned. I'm working with another colleague on one trying to see if we made a country that did the best that every country now, that, that any country now does. For example, if you selected uh, 
say, Cuba as the exemplar of taking care of its people medically, uh, and uh, uh, Norway as a country that uh, is doing the right things with some of its finances and so on. If you put it all together, uh, would you be able to have an ideal country? And the answer, sadly, is no. <laughs> right, exactly. And I'm writing a memoir uh, for my grandchildren, uh, yes. telling them, as a matter of fact, I was writing when, uh, uh, when we started this conversation on a summer I spent with the Inuit in the Arctic. And there's a lot of lessons in that, too. Uh, and then there's a lot of papers and so on. So it's, sure. it's, uh, I'm, I, time is not hanging heavy on my hands. And yes. I'm wrestling with some of the health problems that are inevitable for somebody my age. Um, the, uh, I'm, when I go to Australia, I'm going to do, get, can I give a little commercial? Okay, sure. I, I fly there because the direct flight is United Airlines Polaris class, which is business class. Okay. Uh, because my back won't take 13, 15 hours tourists, but it's fantastic practice for people my age. I take along a little packet of formaldehyde, and it's just like lying in a coffin for 15 hours. So if you want to practice being <laughs> Uh, fly Polaris on United Airlines to Australia, sprinkle a little formaldehyde on a lie there like this, and it's perfect practice. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you know, this leads me, before I even ask any of the other questions, one of the things that uh, the last time that you and I interacted, I was simply uh, reaching out to you because I had learned that William Catton, uh, author of Overshoot, had died and was creating a, uh, an obituary on my Huffington Post blog. And, you know, you have been one of the people more than, I mean, you and Catton and others, the, the Limits to Growth authors, I mean, it's just people who have seen what's in the pipeline, who see what's coming. The trends are obvious. Um, the, uh, the attempts at debunking uh, have been um, without faith, uh, completely baseless, most of them. How have you held this? How have you continued to do the work that you do um, in the face? It's the Cassandra syndrome, yeah. which you even wrote about, you know, back in the day. So how's that been for you emotionally and, and as well as intellectually? Uh, I, I'm fortunate uh, in that my work is something I love. Uh, and I also uh, love drinking wine and keeping my internal environment in great shape while the external goes down the drain. It's yeah. very depressing uh, from the point of view, and it's always been this my main attitude, what kind of world I'm leaving uh, to my now great-grandchildren uh, yes. as well as grandchildren and yes. daughter uh, and so on. And I guess I take the advice that uh, Gerardo Ceballos, my closest Mexican colleague, um, and I strongly agree on, and that is uh, you've got to keep doing the things that you think are right and well and hoping that what you know intellectually is somehow not going to be true. That yes. is, we're going down the drain. Uh, I tell my uh, junior colleagues, keep doing your research. If the crash is not too severe and civilization somehow gets restarted, some of the things, and there still is enough electricity to run a few computers or whatever, uh, that you may be, what you have learned uh, may be helpful in the future. For example, I put 
half a century into studying the population dynamics, that is the growth and shrinkage of a set of insect populations. And we learned what's necessary to preserve them uh, until global climate change wiped them out. Right. But in the future, uh, if we had a chance to restart civilization, it would give some good clues on what are the best places to preserve originally. In other words, my, my basic, my most important intellectual activity is trying to get people to plan for a restart, for rebooting civilization. Not a, I don't think there's the tiniest chance uh, that we'll avoid some form of a crash. That is a loss of complexity in civilization, uh, a unfortunate uh, great increase in the death rate, which we're already beginning to see in some mm -hmm, places. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, well, there's the cheery side of the story. What I, I managed to stay very active. Uh, I cannot uh, leave the TV on when the thug appears. Uh, I literally can't stand uh, realizing it's not actually the fact that we have a really stupid sexual predator and thug as president. But when you look at the, particularly the Republican senators that refuse to do anything in the face of this, and you realize that similar people and groups are now taking over Brazil and uh, uh, Turkey yeah. and India and so on and so forth, it tells me we're actually, I think, in the start of the collapse. In other words, you have people in charge who are doing everything possible to enrich themselves and in the process uh, destroy our life support systems and make a, a lot of perfectly innocent people suffer. Yes, yes. Well, this is one of the things that only in the last seven years have I really understood the, uh, the urgency of climate. Um, and also things like overshoot and resource depletion and so on. And one of the things I've been studying over these last seven years is the rise and fall of civilizations uh, via uh, Toynbee and Spengler and Vico and sometimes mediated through John Michael Greer and others. And what has helped me emotionally is just realizing that in the contraction of a civilization or an empire, we're pretty much right on schedule in terms of the political dysfunction, the economic insanity and this sort of thing. Yeah, but I was just going to say, the thing that's depressing on that is we have the record of all the civilizations that have gone down the drain. We're the first one that's global. Yes, exactly. Uh, and that's, uh, I mean, Trump may not be the stupidest president we've ever had, but he's certainly the stupidest of the ones that had the power to destroy the world. In other words, if Tyler, if Tyler were a total moron and dangerous, uh, the wars he could start were not going to end the world. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, Paul, I want to come to the the, the theme of this particular podcast series uh, titled Post-Doom, Conversations Exploring, uh, or Regenerative Conversations Exploring Overshoot, Grief, Gratitude, and Grounding. First of all, the term post-doom, uh, how do you think about that? But how, what language do you find yourself using for these contracting and deteriorating times and what's on? Oh, I, I use collapse. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, post-doom uh, would be a perfectly fine title if it took hold for the post-collapse reset. Yes. You know, what do you do after the collapse? The two things 
that I would love to see happen. One is find ways to ameliorate the impact of the collapse mm -hmm. so that you don't lose, uh, you know, it, it would be, as far as I'm concerned, if you only had a billion people die early, that would be a very successful thing when we're shooting for 10 or 11 billion and could lose virtually all of them. Not all Correct. of them, I think, unless there's a large scale uh, nuclear, thermonuclear war, there's essentially no chance that humanity will go extinct unless we manage to hold off the war long enough to heat the planet to the point where nobody can survive. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure I share that assessment because I've been still one of the things I've been studying recently is just last six months or so is abrupt climate change. Watching uh, the videos of Paul Beckwith and reading uh, meteorologist uh, Nick Humphrey and just reading a few others. And it seems to me that if the Arctic becomes ice free in September and then the next year a little more and a little more uh, that could that self reinforcing feedback around methane specifically uh, could raise things so fast that I think we could possibly lose. Uh, no, I, I, I agree with that. I just think the odds of that are, <clears throat> particularly with people like Trump, moving the collapse earlier, <laughs> could weirdly save more lives in the long run. Uh, but oh, we had a lot of discussion of this when we were doing in the early 80s, the nuclear winter studies yes, jointly yes. with the Russians. I, I, I'll tell you, let me tell you something optimistic. Okay. Uh, I think weirdly that if there's any set of saviors, it might be the military. I found that working with field grade officers on the nuclear war issue, they all said nuclear war is unethical by military standards, that what we're supposed to do is minimize civilian casualties. The military in the U.S. is doing all kinds of stuff about trying to deal with climate disruption even though you have a moron in charge. Uh, so it could be <laughs> that yes. uh, the, all of us who not think of ourselves as not being warriors and not wanting to, you know, not being great fans of the military, uh, there may be more rescue there than most of us had felt emotionally previously. I mean, yes. after all, I yes. was very active during the Vietnam War and I felt for our military, but I did not, you know, I, yes. it was a terrible thing to do. Um, yes. Yeah. Well, th this leads me into the, really the heart of this uh, particular project is to invite you to share your story of, you know, what were your expectations? What was, you know, so many people in America especially have had what could be called the secular religion of perpetual progress. That was sort of our... Uh, our, our religion over throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. And so I'm curious, how did that, you know, how was it for you growing up uh, in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s? Uh, how did it shift for you? Was it, was there a dramatic or, or gradual shift to a sense of, you know, carrying capacity overshoot and just all the things that you're aware of. Um, and take as long as you want in terms of sharing that story, because anybody watching this or listening to this is going to be aware of your stature and would be very interested in hearing how that transition over time happened for you. Well, first of all, uh, the smartest thing I ever did in my entire life was to be born in 1932. Uh, Everybody should be born in 1932 because my father lost his job uh, just uh, after I was born in the Depression. And although I don't really remember any 
hardship from the depression. Uh, my father particularly, but my parents, and the same happened with Anne, who's basically my age too, uh, talked the depression. The two of us, we've been married now for 65 years. We've bought two things on time. Our first car, because we had to have a car, and our house. Yes. We've never, you know, we were taught you don't buy anything you don't have the money for. And yeah. you were really, you know, watching those things closely. Then along comes the Second World War, uh, which in, in forcibly introduced both of us to the world. Uh, both of us asked our parents in the early 1940s when we were around 10, uh, would they continue to publish the newspapers after the war? <laughs> right. All the news every page of the newspaper was filled up with the war. Uh, at that, I was when I was a teenager, my frontal lobes weren't uh, uh, myelinated yet. Uh, and uh, the frontal lobes are what give you sense. It's what's totally missing in Trump, for example. And that's why adolescents are notoriously have trouble uh, dealing with various kinds of issues. Mm -hmm. I desperately wanted to be a fighter pilot. I was hoping the war would last long enough for me to get into it. <laughs> uh, so all that was fine. But then I uh, went to college with the last of the, of the uh, World War II veterans. I started mm -hmm. college in 49, mm -hmm. and that was just about when the last of the veterans on the uh, GI Bill mm -hmm. going to college. And I roomed with um, uh, several veterans uh, who became good friends. And for instance, when I wanted to join a fraternity, they threw me into a cold shower and said, you want to play at being a little boy and that sort of thing. And they were all very concerned about various issues. Um, one of my closest friends then had been wounded um, in the Philippines in 1946 by a holdout Japanese soldier. Mm. Uh, he had then gone with the occupation forces to uh, Japan, became very sympathetic with the Japanese and not sympathetic with some of their behavior during the war, obviously. Uh, ended up uh, later on, obviously, married to a wonderful Nisai woman. Uh, who had been on the East Coast in the United States and not uh, imprisoned like we did to the perfectly loyal Japanese on our West Coast. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so we had lots of discussions of racial issues, of hatred between countries. And then um, William Vogt's book and yes. Fairfield Osborne, uh, we read that. We used to have big discussions of it. I had, I'd never had my parents... Uh, my mother in particular tried to answer all of my questions. My parents both explained to me that contrary to the U.S. propaganda, the Japanese did not have tails. They were not genetically treacherous. Uh, and uh, but, but Paul, say that, again. say that again. You said contrary to popular belief, the Japanese, and you, it, it froze when you started saying Japanese. So start that sentence again. Well, there were the, the, the U.S. propaganda was that the Japanese were tre inherently treacherous and they had small tails and so on and so forth. Race, I mean, racism, yes. after all, when I was a kid, uh, lynchings were common yes. in the South. My parents were very liberal. Uh, 
in, in fact, the, the world was very different in those days. Yes. Uh, and I, it had been for a while going, uh, in my view, in the right direction. For example, uh, my family was nominally Jewish. I often say, I, of course, have no interest in supernatural monsters. I've often said that I'm Jewish only for purposes of persecution. <laughs> Looking back on it, though, my parents, who were very liberal, had zero non-Jewish friends when we lived in North Jersey. And there were the Wops, the Dagos, the Kikes, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. Niggers, the whole mess. And I thought we had largely suppressed that. I worked very hard on that. I was very much involved in uh, desegregating the restaurants of Lawrence, Kansas with sit-ins, had my life threatened and mm. so on and so forth. Uh, but uh, I've always been aware of what was going on in the world ever since my frontal lobe smiled. Yes, exactly. So there's not been any big moment for me. I watched, I couldn't raise butterfly caterpillars in North Jersey because they'd sprayed so much DDT around uh, to control the mosquitoes, which of course it didn't work uh, or worked for a while. And I had watched Levitt towns being built over butterfly habitat. Uh, and so the overshoot, the things that Bill Vogt wrote about and so on were very real to mm -hmm. me. And when I went to graduate school, uh, I was lucky. You want more crap on this? Yeah, yeah. No, this yeah. is continue, please. It's, because I was, I um, collected butterflies. I got into that in a summer camp and I loved the diversity and the beauty and so on. And I ended up meeting, uh, getting an introduction to Charles Michener at the um, American Museum of Natural History in New York. We were living in North Jersey. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mitch was 11 years older than I was. I met him when I was 15, and he was 26, I think, and just gotten out of Berkeley. Mm -hmm. uh, couldn't get a job working on the evolution of bees because there just wasn't jobs. So he took a job uh, as the curator of butterflies and moths at the, at the American Museum. And uh, he introduced me to the Lepidopterus Society, of which I am undoubtedly uh, now, I think, the last charter member still alive, somewhere in that league anyway. No uh, and uh, I ended up eventually going to graduate school, working with him. He got, he got a job working on bees, which is what he wanted to do, bee evolution, and took it at the University of Kansas. And... Uh, he was at some point, maybe then, the only member of the National Academy between Chicago and the coast. And uh, Mitch got me a fellowship with another brilliant scientist who happened to be at Kansas named Bob Sokol, Robert Sokol, who brought statistics into biology and utterly transformed the whole field of taxonomy. So I was lucky to have two great mentors uh, in graduate school and then I was lucky to be able to get a job at Stanford. There were jobs were scarce, mm -hmm. but I got it. And the NSF, the National Science Foundation, was just starting up then. I had gotten a pre-doctoral fellowship from them, which allowed Ann and me to survive in graduate school. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got support for my work for many years from the National Science Foundation. It was a great era for science. 
Uh, now, of course, that's being destroyed progressively around the world. Mm -hmm. Universities with, I don't know, any exception, there may be, but certainly the great universities, so-called, like Harvard and Stanford, are intellectual sewers from the point of view that they're still teaching as if it was 1790. I mean, I'd love to see Stanford brought in to the 19th or 20th century, yeah. but it's not going to happen. Yeah. Universities are built-in parts of the system that's destroying us, and they cannot change. Uh, yeah. the, uh, the, my, my best man, our best man, was a close friend who became a historian when we were, gra we were graduate students. And he summarized Stanford perfectly in one phrase, which fits Harvard, too. It's a full-service whorehouse. Yeah. Uh, it's very sad. Anyway, so I didn't have any moment of the shells dropping from my eyes, unless you can say that rooming with World War II veterans was incredibly important. And living for a full summer and working and learning the language of the Inuit, of the Eskimos yes. in 1952, um, I, I almost changed to anthropology when I saw how they were treated. Um, the, uh, the Canadian government is still not treating them well. And a major reason is, guess what? They're trying to establish their sovereignty yeah. over the Canadian Arctic archipelago in order to be able to exploit the mineral resources, which will destroy our climate. Yeah. Uh, and the, they're still at it. They, they forcibly moved a lot of Inuit into a place where I had been and where I could have told the Inuit that they didn't want to go there because yeah. there was no game. But yeah. they were moved. They were told they could move back if they didn't like it. They didn't like it. And then the Canadian government said, well, uh, you can move back, but it'll cost you uh, $970 or something for your transport. These are people, you know, who made $2 a month, maybe. Uh, they, uh, anyway, it, horrible treatment of the Inuit, which is not well known. It's basically a whole, they, they, they've tried to make up for it with setting up the Nunavut and so on. But uh, much as I'm a fan of Canada, in many ways, having worked with Canadians, um, but uh, their treatment of the Inuit was yeah. uh, not much better than our treatment of the Native Americans. We our records yeah. even worse. But, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, Paul, one of the things I'm curious about, and I would imagine anybody watching or listening to this would be as well, is that because you've been aware of these um, patterns and um, dysfunctions and, um, you know, I could go on and on for decades, many decades. What has allowed you or supported you in staying sane in these crazy times when you're aware of these, this dysfunction? What makes you think I'm sane? <laughs> you, you've lost all yeah. sense of perception. There. Uh, I have to say that my, I try and take an evidence-based view of the world. And when you get to be uh, my age, there are certain things that you know you can predict with absolute certainty, like 10 years from now, I'm going to be dead. Uh, but that doesn't hold any particular fear for me because, um, well, I quote an old acquaintance of mine, um, uh, the author, uh, oh, my God, I want to Vladimir. 
<laughs> I'm having a senior moment. Yeah, just no, 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 that's okay. Nabokov. Okay. Nabokov worked on butterflies. I met him in the American Museum when he wrote uh, his famous book, the name of which you'll remember, but I don't, Vladimir Nabokov, Lolita. I was at Kansas as a graduate student, and we had cards in those days which said, Dear Dr. Blank, um, if I would very much like a copy of a reprint of your paper, such and such and such, sincerely yours, because we didn't have what we're doing now, and so on. Yeah. And so I sent him a reprint card with Lolita on it, and he, that was the end of our correspondence. <laughs> anyway, he wrote, if I can remember it right, he said, um, that human existence is a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. Mm -hmm. So I've spent at least 14, 15 billion years dead, and <laughs> I will spend probably another at least equal length of time dead after in, in some, sometime in the next decade. Um, and it doesn't, what bothers me is uh, losing contact with many, many friends mm. and maybe even more important, not knowing what the hell actually happens. Mm. Uh, but I don't find that terrifying particularly. Um, the, uh, it's easily cured with a bottle of 41 Mouton or something like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I often say when I do programs on mortality and death uh, that, you know, it seems to me pretty clear that where we go to when we die is the same place we came from before we were born. And whether you speak of that as coming from nothing and returning to nothing or coming from mystery and returning yeah. to mystery or coming from God and returning to God, there's lots of different ways to talk about it. But if where I go to isn't the very same place that all other plants and animals and bacteria have gone, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, seem to, doesn't seem to me that we get a special place. And really, part of what this series is about is my inviting various uh, uh, thought leaders, activists, authors, professors uh, to really share their take on, on what it is to shift from human-centeredness, anthropocentrism, which is so unsustainable and so self-destructive over time, to life-centeredness or ecocentrism, or as I read indigenous cultures, tribal first peoples that were able to live in place without destroying the place, probably to a, to a single one, they lived in a way that we would say is uh, eco-theo, that is the ecos, the, the ecosphere was related to as a thou, not an it to be exploited. And whatever their notion of spirit or the divine or whatever was present in and revealed through and expressed in the voices of the living world. And we don't do that. We treat the living world as an it, or sort of resources well, a resource. or a waste. Yes, exactly. I'm going to be visiting, uh, not for the first time this time uh, next month, um, the most sustainable and sustained civilization on the planet. And that is, of course, the Australian Aborigines, yes. who I have been in places, uh, very interested in Aboriginal art. I have been in places where the paintings are in the vicinity of 10 to 15,000 years old painted over and over where the rocks underneath the overhang where the paintings are um, the rocks are polished smooth by 10 or 15,000 years of human butts sitting on them and I have talked to the lineal descendants of the artists a couple miles away from the site of where the paintings were done 
we're not going to go 15,000 years with our society. Right. And I think one of the, I've also, um, when you talk about religion, I'm not even a fan of the um, sort of standard religions that everybody talks about. I was glad to see some data the other day that less than half, half of uh, Americans consider themselves uh, religious. But uh, the ones that seem harmless, like the sort of standard Protestant sects or uh, the not crazy Jewish sects, the ones that are just reformed, I can't remember the terminology anyway, because they allow people to think it's perfectly all right to live in a world where you don't listen to the evidence, uh, where you don't deal with uh, taking care of, for instance, people who are dying uh, in reasonable ways. Uh, for instance, you know, if I, I what the biggest scare I have is that my mind will go before I have a chance to take the pills. Right. In exactly. our society, it's perfectly all right to put a horse out of its misery, but it won't be perfectly all right to put me out of my misery, even though many people wish they could. <laughs> the, yeah. Well, I, th this is this is precisely the kind of thing that I regularly speak about in terms of death and religion. It seems to me I've been influenced by not only Thomas Berry and William Catton, but also uh, Teddy Goldsmith, uh, his book, The Stable Society, and also The Way, an Ecological Worldview. And it seems to me there's a profound difference between sustainable cultures or the role that life weighs. It wasn't called religion, but it was life weighs in sustainable cultures really is that moral element of society that ensures that the future is not compromised by the present. Teddy Goldsmith even defined religion in healthy societies as the control mechanism, that which insists on honoring limits upon pain of death or ostracizing, and that in unsustainable cultures, religion downgrades to being merely a coping mechanism. It can't... Uh, well, that's what Marx said. Yeah. Remember what he said? No, I don't. Oh, he said religion is the opiate of the people. I'm familiar with Marx's opiate of the masses, for sure. And that's really what it is, is it's in yeah. dysfunctional, unsustainable cultures. It allows people to function uh, and have healthy relationships. But ultimately, I don't think any of the great religions, the quote-unquote great religions of the Axial Age, um, are up to the task. And so we need to relearn, assuming some portion of humanity survives this bottleneck, we must relearn how to be intimate with the, with the biosphere as a greater thou, not a lesser it. Well, when you, can, when you consider how much money and effort we put into nuclear weapons, that, I mean, I, I was a fan of Obama as a president. It was stunned me that we would finally have an African-American president during my mm -hmm. lifetime, which mm -hmm. I never would have predicted. Right. But he went along with uh, our uh, changing our nuclear weapons system to one that can strike the Russians by surprise. And he may actually have started us with others, of course, on a route towards a full-scale nuclear war, which we know is basically the end. So yes. um, religion hasn't, the very fact that we continue to war and that we have put such huge effort into making it possible to actually end the world. In other words, yes. just think about it. If the Romans had had nuclear weapons, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation because Absolutely. when the barbarians were coming over the wall, they'd have used them. Yes, uh, exactly. And, uh, well, anyway, yeah. cheery, cheery, big. <laughs> 
Well, Paul, I'm curious, what is your sense of what, uh, you know, what's now beyond our control, uh, but what still is something that we can do individually or collectively that can make a difference? In other words, what's your well, sense of no, what's no longer possible, but what still is possible? I think it's no longer possible to actually reverse the trend towards some form of a collapse. That could be a financial collapse you, you, because of the, uh, we have so much debt that is unsecured, basically. It, climate disruption is something that um, uh, most people think of when they think of environmental problems, although loss of biodiversity may be equally or more serious and they're tightly tied together. Exactly. The, this, the increasing load of plastics and plastics coated with persistent organic pollutants and the pollutants that now are worse in small quantities than large ones. Uh, there's just all kinds of horrendous possibilities. What is possible? Well, uh, my closest friends among Australian scientists say you got to go to the streets. And I think the um, Extinction Rebellion, that sort of thing, is the direction that the, if the people don't somehow demand that we start paying attention and start in the direction of not consuming, not killing our enemies and so on, uh, and start thinking. I mean, for example, I've tried to persuade, no luck at all. I, I uh, founded with Ann and uh, Don Kennedy an organization called, uh, which we called the Millennium Assessment of Human Behavior, but is, mm -hmm. uh, is now fading for lack of support, lack of financial support, even though it's very popular, trying to get civil society pointing in the right direction to see, for instance, we, I would love to get Palo, I live in one of the richest places in the world where real people can't afford yes. to live. I mean, we, we, the only reason we can afford to live near Stanford is that we bought a house before the prices went up. So we paid $25,000 for a house, which we sold for $1.4 million 40 some years later. And we had to pay that 1.4 million to get a small apartment yes, exactly. to move into. Well, uh, that that sort of thing is not sustainable. Uh, and I wanted Palo Alto, the local town, to start looking into the issue of how would you live in Palo Alto if there was only electricity for two hours a day and water for one hour a day and there was no... Um, uh, uh, currency to use the the, mm -hmm. the the currency was so debased and uh how would you eat what would you do how would you control things that's the sort of thing we should be looking at how can you make the collapse uh, not totally disastrous i mean i guess what i'm old enough to have lived and survived without a cell phone mm -hmm. uh, when I came to Stanford in 1959, we did not have access to personal computers, to Xerox machines, to tape recorders. Uh, we had to drive our own cars, and I knew what every part in the car did and could fix it myself and so on. And life was actually just wonderful. I did not feel, you know, I felt that I was on top of the world. We had won the war. Uh, I had a job. I was able to eat reasonable food all the time. Uh, I could drink wine. I could get drunk, uh, you know, and I certainly uh, could enjoy the opposite sex. Uh, 
most of the crap that we keep having shoved at us really isn't necessary for a happy life because I know I had a happy life without it. Exactly. And having watched the Inuit uh, when I was with them, you can have a happy life with a lot less uh, and exactly. a satisfying life. Uh, but that's the sort of thing we ought to be discussing. And what are we discussing? How you get rid of a hideous criminal who is, you know, pushing us faster and faster towards a worse and worse collapse. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Well, Paul, in, in winding this down, I'm curious, what would be your coaching or advice or counsel to say somebody in their senior years? And then what, how would you speak to a young person, uh, someone in their late teens, 20s, early 30s? So I spent a lot of time talking to young people because that's the job yes, if you're a exactly. faculty member. The, the biggest advice I always have given them and would still give is you got to make a living, whether you like it or not, do something you love. Much more important to enjoy your work than it is to make a lot of money. Uh, exactly. Because uh, making the money is dull as hell. And uh, I, I made this decision when I was about 17, I think. I decided that working 50 weeks a year to get enough money to travel somewhere and collect butterflies for two weeks was nowhere near as good a way as doing fooling with butterflies all the time if I could find somebody who would give me enough money so I could eat while I was doing it. And that was the right decision to make. Fortunately, I did not have to go short on food or live in a tent or so on to do that. Uh, so do something you love learn about the state of the world and what the evidence shows, mm -hmm. and then be as active as you possibly can uh, in, uh, in trying to change it. And that means political action. I think everybody has to be a politician. If you don't be a politician, then you're going to get what you deserve. You're going to be Trumpized. Uh, so uh, that's my advice to young people. My advice to people my age is keep on drinking keep on having sex uh, and do anything you can just like the young people to change the political system. Uh, the uh, uh, people I, I remember very clearly, and I'm going to have to go in a minute, but I sure. remember very clearly we worked very hard to get a, uh, a women's rights bill passed. A, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it was to give women Mm -hmm. which they should have equal rights and opportunities to human beings. Um, excuse me. <laughs> Give women totally equal rights and equal opportunities uh, with men. And um, the, it did not pass. It was, the, it was an equal rights amendment to right, the Constitution. Exactly. And it didn't pass because a lot of women didn't get politically active. Mm -hmm. You know, the way our system works is you got to be politically active. You got to threaten them. You got to hold their feet to the fire. It's never been clearer than yesterday when something like two dozen morons invaded uh, a, a congressional meeting and threatened our security. And they were, again, backing the thug. They were low grade thugs. Uh, that's something we all have to do something to prevent. And getting out on the streets is a very good thing to do if you're young enough to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah. On that happy note. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Paul, for taking the time and for your work over the decades. And uh, may you have a uh, uh, blessed and fulfilling rest of your days. Thank you. If sometime in those later days I'm still around, I'm always happy to do this again if we can find the time. So thank you for what you're doing and take care. Okay. You too. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.